Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to have all of you here. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition. Today we have our first large live audience since before COVID. And so it's delightful. And guess where they're from? Sweet Home Chicago. Come down to Sweet Home Alabama. So it's good to have you all here. Welcome. Welcome indeed to EWTN. Now, like these nice folks who've come all this way from uh, up north, we'd love to have you be part of the program because they'll be able to add their own questions and comments during the show, but you can do that by calling in. If you live in North America, the phone number is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, that won't work, so you can call country code one Area code 205-271-2980. 205-271-2980. You can also send us questions and comments by email by writing to scripture and tradition at EWTN.com or follow us to participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now today we'll be looking at Jesus Calling calling people to repentance, and calling apostles to follow him. We'll be in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 4, and we'll examine that material now. So we'll begin with material on Matthew 4. If you are following along, uh, using my book, Praying the Gospels, Jesus launches his public ministry, uh, which you can still get at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52687. We are working on chapter 5 in that book. And we're taking a look at the second meditation in that chapter which is on Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. We'll just focus on one verse for this uh, meditation. This is the verse that says, From that time of returning to Galilee, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of, God, of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is a summary of Jesus' whole message. To repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you recall, last week we talked about Jesus being that light shining in the darkness of Galilee. And that he came into Galilee the, a land in darkness. And we talked about how the darkness included the various oppressions by the Assyrians and in the time of Christ by the Romans. And that that darkness and oppression lay over the land. And he came in as a light shining in it. And the radiance 
of the light of Christ is this basic message of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, let's take a look at this more carefully. First of all, the word repent, what does that mean? In Greek, it's metanoein. And it is, the, in the Greek text, it is a plural imperative. So this is speaking to everyone. That's why it's plural. And it's an imperative. It's not like, you know, if you, know, you feel that this doesn't impinge on some of your sensitivities or your culture or something, you may want to think about repenting. It could be good for you. It may not be good for everybody, but it could be good. No! He doesn't talk like that. That's college courses. They talk like that. Instead, it's an imperative. Y'all repent. It's something that he's commanding. This is not a mere suggestion based on how you feel at that present moment. No, it's a command that Christ gives. And remember, we, as part of our creed, it's our faith that Jesus Christ is God made man. This is God giving the command, repent. And it's to everyone, no exceptions. This is a very important uh, notion. What does the word repent mean? So we see the form of it, an imperative, a command. But the meaning of it is also very important. The word repent means to turn around. Now, the assumption behind repenting is that you are going down a wrong path. You are doing something that will get you to a bad place. If you are committing sin, if you are promoting sin, you are on a path that is leading to hell. And the command to repent is a command to turn in the other direction and go back away from that direction. Turn away from the path that leads to damnation in hell. Hell is not something that would be, you know, uh, well, it's just sort of a little, you know, spanking or something. This is for all eternity. You know, it's, we live a short life. And I've, you know, been probably through most, of, I'm pretty sure I've been through most of my life. And I've known people who are, a hundred years old, one of my Jesuit brothers that I've known since I was a novice 54 years ago, uh, celebrated his hundredth birthday earlier this year. <coughs> and I've known a few others. And 
while on one hand, a lot of times they're kind of tired and life is, you know, they feel aches and pains. Yet, they all agree on this. I can't believe I'm 100. Where did the years go by so quickly? It's a short span. Whereas eternity has no end. There's no stop to it. And our Lord does not want, it, it is not God's will. Remember what St. Paul wrote to Timothy in Second uh, Timothy 2, that God does not will us to be damned. He wills all people to be saved. That's God's will. But you do have to turn around and turn towards heaven because that's the other side of it. Turning around and away from the path that leads to hell is a turn toward the path to heaven. That's what is at stake. And it's a complete turnaround. It's not enough to recognize that the path is incorrect. That's just the first step. You know, you, you can't say, oh, yeah, I think I am on a wrong path. You know, I'm getting drunk all the time. I'm getting high. And, you know, I find myself uh, driven by various uh, addictions. And, yeah, this, this may be not so good. And then stay on it. That's not the way to salvation. You have to realize that it's wrong. That's the first step. And then you have to recognize that it's leading to only bad results. Nothing good comes of violence. Nothing good comes from being filled with lust. Nothing good comes from using drugs and getting drunk. Nothing good comes from getting drunk. There's no positive future. You have to realize that. And then you have to realize that there is something better. It's worth turning away from all of that catastrophe. Now, part of the way of repentance is to realize that the path of sin hurts. Hangovers hurt. And you have to say, well, it wasn't so bad. I'll try it again. Or you eventually come to a point of saying, I never, ever want to be drunk again. I never want to have that pain of a hangover. And the same with other, you know, sins. Committing adultery. You realize what a catastrophe it brings into a family. And how it affects people terribly. And there's, I, I don't know, I suspect from what I hear from some psychologists and social workers that this has gotten more serious a problem of drug use and adultery and other illicit sexual unions. It seems to be more common. And it's not men only, it's men and women and breaking up a family. And to, to be aware of the pain that that causes is very important. And to see how in those situations and other sins, 
that it brings catastrophe not only to the individual committing the sin, but it harms other people too. The betrayed spouse in an adulterous relationship, the family of a drug user, families whose children get shot by drug dealers and drug users and robbed, parents being robbed by their children to support these habits, these things hurt other people, and it's important to pay attention to that. And by feeling that pain, you begin to see that this is not good in this life, and it'll be even worse in hell. That's the conclusion we have to come to. And so, um, at this point, we need to have a sense of turning around, away from the path of self-destruction, and to find that while it may not be exciting at the outset because repentance means dying to yourself. You have to give up stuff that you thought was okay and good, and that's not easy, especially in the initial stages. It's hard. But at the same time, this is going to be a way that leads to interior peace. That, as our Savior Jesus said, the world cannot give you that peace and the world cannot take it away. Even the martyrs being tortured, they felt the pain of the torture, but they had a peace inside of them. And I've, I've talked to people who knew martyrs that were tortured in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe, and yet they had of peace because they knew Christ loved them. And this is something that we grow into. Now, in the modern times, we have a couple of things going on. First of all, a lot of people simply deny that they need to repent. I'm not so bad. You know, I grew up in Chicago. And people would say, oh, I'm not so bad. I mean, I haven't killed anybody. Okay, well, that sounds good. You sound like a good person. So long as you're comparing yourself to Al Capone. The problem is this. Al Capone is not the standard by which you get into heaven. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the norm. And what we have to ask is not how I stack up compared to various criminal associations. How do I stack up in the face of Jesus Christ and the Sermon on the Mount? That's where, so this is something that is a defense mechanism, just like Sigmund Freud, the psychologist said, denial is one of the uh, typical defense mechanisms people have. Sometimes they project their own bad behavior onto other people. Pay attention a lot to people in politics who keep pointing out 
the sins of their opponents. All these negative ads on both sides, by the way. Pay attention to that because a lot of times those guys are doing exactly what they accuse their enemies are doing. Sometimes that's the reason they understand it so well. This is a very uh, typical kind of uh, you know, projection onto other people. And so there are all these defenses that we have. And then there is another area in the modern times that I see a lot. Namely, that people will avoid calling the culture to repent. A lot of times people don't want to say that what the culture is doing is wrong. We're going through that now. This whole issue of you know, taking the question of abortion outside of a Supreme Court decision back in 1973. And now it'll be put back into the states. Each state will make up its own regulations, which is the way it was before Roe v. Wade. And this is going to be a, a call for all of us who believe thou shalt not murder and take the commandment of God seriously to be able to say that we are going to address the culture. Children, whether in the womb or out of the womb, are not toss-away things. This isn't like paper towels you just toss away. These are human beings with immortal souls created by God in the womb of their mothers. And we have to call the culture, we have to call the culture away from pornography, away from human trafficking. We have to be alert. You know, again, I grew up thinking, well, of course, politicians are going to be corrupt, so you just accept it. No. We have to call any and all politicians away from corruption. And ourselves, if we have businesses, that we're not going to be corrupt in our businesses. We have to say that it's not right to cheat. We have to summon the culture away from these various sins that are accepted today. Over 50, right now it's 52% of all children are born to unmarried parents. This is not good. This is the number one cause of impoverishment among women and especially, even more so, among children. We have to call the culture away from that sin of fornication. And all of the other issues that we have, and this is something that will be key. Pay attention to this. A number of denominations, beginning in 1929 with the Episcopalians, said that contraception was morally acceptable to them. Within two years, they approved abortion. And the other denominations followed them, the mainline Protestant churches. Today, how has that affected them? 
Have people joined up with them and said, yeah, you're modern, we'll stay with you? Uh-uh. There are now more than four times as many Jewish people living in New York City as Episcopalians. Five times as many Jewish people in New York City as Presbyterians. They don't accept the Ten Commandments on these issues of sexuality. No, we have to address them and not hide from them. And this will be part of the call to repentance in the modern times. All right, we'll take a break. We'll take a look then at what some of this might mean for us and then take a look at the call of the apostles. So please stay with us. I just want to finish up uh, one last little set of points about this call by Jesus, this command to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Think about it this way. While Christ was walking into Galilee, imagine him walking into your life and my life. Each one of us needs to have that sense of Christ walking into the darkness of our lives. A lot of times we want to present ourselves at our best, but Christ truly desires to walk into the areas of sin in our lives and calls to repent. Ask our Lord, what are some of the shadowy sides of life that you know the Lord wants to enter? What parts of you need to repent? Think about this. What are some of the paths that may have led you to sin? What are these pathways that are destructive and lead you to destruction? And think on how sin had made a promise to you, but you know, of something good and satisfying, but then left you flat. You know, this is something to pay attention to. See, you know, remember how we say in the uh, renewal of our baptismal vows, do you reject Satan and all his empty promises? What's the emptiness of the promises that the evil one gives? And then picture Jesus coming into your life and lead, turning you around and leading you into a path that is going to be one that is the right path. How he helps you to retrace your steps. And as you leave the pathways of sin, 
see him opening up a new path. Remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy. That leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard. That leads to life. And there are few who find it. This is something that, to remember. The, the path of Christian morality and growth is a hard path. It's not the easy one. It's not the wide one that the culture follows. But it's one that leads to eternal life. And see about the path that our Lord wants you to follow. What does he want you to do instead of sin? And to think about this too. Do you believe that heaven is worth going to? Or are you like some of those people I've met who said, well, I think all my friends are going to be in hell. I might as well be there with them. I guarantee you, if they are, I don't know if they are. It's none of my business. But if they are and you're with them, I guarantee you, you spend the rest of eternity screaming at each other to blame each other for getting in hell. That's the way it'll be. They won't be your friends anymore. You'll be the people that blame you and you blame. And just ask our Lord about that choice about to go to heaven or not. Now, this third meditation is about Jesus calling his first four apostles. It's in Matthew 4, very next verses, verses uh, 18 to 22. And it says, As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as they went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now there are two different groups of brothers here, right? Uh, Andrew and Peter, and then James and John. All of them are honest, hardworking guys. They're part of a very important uh, business. The Sea of Galilee has a lot of fish in it, very abundant fish life. It's a freshwater lake, and uh, the, sea, the Jordan River flows into it and then flows out at the southern end. And their fish had such a good reputation, it was prized in Rome. They pickled it and sent it to Rome because they didn't have ketchup. You know why? There were no tomatoes. All the tomatoes were still in America. And they hadn't discovered America yet. So they had fish sauce. Now some folks from Asia use fish sauce, right? And they would spice it up. And that's what they put on their food. So see, just like Jesus and the apostles. And as he walks into this scene of fishermen minding their own business, taking care of their nets. He's the one 
who is looking for them. They are not looking for God. This is a case of God looking for them. Christ takes the initiative to call them and call them away from their family and their business so that they can enter into and help establish a newer and much more widespread brotherhood, which is what they've done. And this is a, a very important of this, and they, they accept it. The first two brothers are from the town of Bethsaida, which means the house of fishing. It's this name that is fishing town. And they, uh, you know, have this sense of becoming fishers of men. He starts off with what they already do, being you know, fishers. But instead of fishing for fish, they'll fish for men. They're to go out and draw people into the net of God's love. And then he goes to the next brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and asks them to join Jesus. Now, he doesn't, you know, say to them, I'll make you fishers of men. Maybe he did, but we don't have that there. But they follow Christ. There's something that they recognize, and they leave their nets and their boat, and just like Peter and Andrew did, and they leave their father, Zebedee, who's in the boat with them, and they go. Now, again, this is a great passage to meditate on in terms of your own vocation in life. You know, what, you know, to, to imagine yourself minding your own business and just taking care of what you do. And Christ enters into that. What would be the thing that you would be doing you know, and I, I take it most of you don't fish for a living. I There's good fish in Lake Michigan, but I don't think any of you are fishing for your main job. And picture your own job, what you do. And imagine Christ coming up to you and saying, come, follow me. And think about the things that you have around you. Think of what you have there and what he's asking you to leave behind. For Peter and Andrew, James and John, it's boats and, and nets. What is the Lord asking you to leave behind? What is your reaction to following Jesus and leaving these other things behind? This is something that's very important. And ask this, what might there be about Jesus that would be so attractive that you would follow him? What would you have in your life or in seeing him that you'd say, yeah, it's worth it to follow this man who doesn't have anything himself. He doesn't have a wagon behind him with all sorts of trinkets and things. It's just Jesus walking there and trusting in his father. And if you were to follow him, what would you be looking for? What would you expect? And what do you expect from following him? 
talk to him as a friend uh, to a friend and ask him to be your good shepherd. This, this would be the, a very important thing to consider and to see how willing you are to follow him. All right, we'll stop there and continue on with Matthew 4 uh, next time. Uh, I'd like to take some questions. Uh, first, I'm going to start off with an email from a guy who lives up in upstate New York. And by the way, this is uh, an area we need to pray for. This horrible, horrible shooting. You know, I, I, I don't get it. You know, what would this young man think about and what would he think he's going to get from going and shooting people for any reason? And in this case, for no reason except the color of their skin. What a grave evil that is. I don't know how he gets to that point, but that kind of evil is something that we have to be all the more alert to let no one in our culture think that that's okay because there's nothing, nothing that is acceptable in such behavior. Killing anyone is unacceptable. Killing anybody for race makes it even worse. And this is very important. But so we'll keep our prayers for the folks in Buffalo and elsewhere in upstate New York who are shocked by all this. But the, the question we get from God, which came before all this, says, Father Mitch, is the evil one capable of having someone believe that he has committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, and therefore repentance is of no use? All right, first of all, Guy is making reference to the uh, statement by Christ in the uh, Gospels, repeated a number of times, where the unforgivable sin is a sin against the Holy Spirit. And we have to deal with um, two aspects of this sin. One, you know, what is it? And then two, and this is Guy's question, can the devil trick you into believing that you committed that sin? First, what is the sin um, against the Holy Spirit? St. Thomas Aquinas, I think, has the best insight, as usual, in saying that it is a belief that you cannot, that the Holy Spirit cannot do anything to help you repent. Okay? That there's nothing you can do to repent. And that you, are, you, know, you have total despair. That would be the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's telling the Holy Spirit, you're not as much God as you say you are, and you don't have the power to work within me. That would be St. Thomas's. Now, here's something I would say. One of the most important aspects of understanding Satan is that in Hebrew, the words uh, shatan means accuser. The Greek word diabolos, devil, means prosecuting attorney. He wants to be our prosecutor 
and accuse us of sin. And furthermore, you see in Revelation chapter 12, right around verse 10, where after St. Michael defeats Satan, it says, now the accuser of our brethren is cast into hell. That he's the one who accuses them day and night. And here's the key, guy. The evil one is going to make all kinds of accusations. I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm a recovering Catholic or recovering Jew because I want to get over my Catholic guilt or my Jewish guilt. You are not dealing with something that is inherent in Catholicism. It's the evil one who keeps making these accusations to the point that you eventually just despair, say, oh, I'm just going to give up and sin anyway because I just no good in me. That is an accusation. And the key guy is to believe in Jesus Christ who calls us to repent. And Jesus Christ who says from the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, and not believe the accusations of Satan. That's why Jesus is called our paraclete. The Holy Spirit and our Lord Jesus are both called our paracletes. A paraclete means, in Greek, a defense lawyer, a counselor for the defense. So do you believe Christ, who forgives you, or Satan, who accuses you? That's the key. Don't believe the evil one. Don't believe the accuser. Trust the one who died for you. Okay? Satan is the one who would kill others for you. Christ is the one who dies for you. All right. We have another, we have a caller on the line. Hello, Cassie? Hello, Father. Hi, where are you calling from? Michigan. Great. And what is your question? All right, so I have a question about anathema, and a little bit of my backstory is that I'm a Catholic. Um, I'm engaged to the man that I love, and I believe that I'm called to marry, but he's a Protestant. Mm -hmm. um, during our engagement process, we've been interacting with this pastor, and a few times this pastor has brought up that he thinks of, of what he thinks the Catholic view is of anathema, which he thinks is essentially damnation. Um, I know mm -hmm. anathema has been mentioned by Paul, and we have a Catholic document um, regarding anathema. Um, based off of the little research that I've done, I haven't done a whole lot, um, it looks more like it's excommunication, and I try to argue mm -hmm. that I don't right. think the Catholic Church um, can really damn someone since we can't nope. even um, guarantee salvation to our own people. We can't guarantee damnation. Nope. To other people. Nope. Um, but they, he doesn't seem to really accept that argument so much. So I'm, my question is, uh, what is anathema? Uh, how does the Catholic Church use it? And okay. what would you say in a situation like All that? All right. A couple things. Um, anathema is, as you say, it means that you may not receive the sacraments, which I assume, given his stance of faith, uh, the minister doesn't want to do anyway. But it means that you may not be, uh, you may not receive the sacraments, and it uh, and it's meant to be a warning for people to know that you know by contradicting what's in scripture and tradition, that uh, you are endangering your soul. However, 
It does not mean that they're condemned. We, you're exactly correct. We cannot condemn somebody to hell. We can say that what you're doing is damnable. If you commit murder, then you know, you, you committed a mortal sin, and that leads to damnation. But we can't say that that murderer went to hell. We won't even say that Judas Iscariot went to hell. The church doesn't teach that we know he went to hell. We don't know. We don't know that Hitler went there. We don't know that Stalin went there. They did damnable things, to be sure. But we don't know that they are damned. That's none of our business. That is the judgment that only God makes. We don't. Okay? But we, can, we do have to say that the behaviors are incorrect and some of them extremely serious. So um, that we say, but we don't decree them uh, in hell. We, as a matter of fact, when I was a very little boy, there was a Catholic priest who taught that all Protestants go to hell. And he was excommunicated by Pope Pius XII for teaching that. That was wrong. That was wrong. So you, you, we, we, we were, and we were told from the pulpit, you cannot believe that. Because one of the issues is, uh, most Protestants, I believe, you know, are, you know, they believe that this is the, what they're holding is the gospel of Christ, and they are being faithful as best they can. They're following their conscience to the best of their ability. And they really do love our Lord very deeply. And they do wonderful things and they have strong faith. And so the, the church recognizes them and we talk about them as separated brethren. We recognize the brotherhood we have with them. And that very, there are plenty of times that lots and lots of Protestants put lots of Catholics to shame. There are a lot of pro-life Protestants in the Senate and the House and in office who put to shame the Catholics who fight in order to maintain what they believe to be a right to kill children in the womb. And I don't think that we're going to ever say, well, you know, they want to cut babies' arms and legs off, but they're still Catholic, so they go to heaven. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No, no, no. We won't go that way. We, we look to those who are doing what Christ says to do. And our Lord will be the one to judge. And you can assure the minister that that's not something I made up. That is, again, Pius XII, hardly a, a wide-eyed liberal uh, or something. No, this is, this is teaching about Protestantism and respecting their conscience, okay? All right, take a break. We'll be back with more questions and questions from our audience. If they have any, so please stay with us.
All right, first of all, before we get to more questions, just want to uh, mention that tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, EWTN Pro Live will be where I talk with a medical doctor who is also a lawyer, Stephen Christie, and we'll talk about speaking up rationally and persuasively for the unborn. He'll give us some quick tips to refute the, uh, all the pro-abortion arguments based on science, reason, and the law, and also social justice and morality. Be a very important discussion, given what's happening right now as the decision Roe v. Wade is up for grabs in the Supreme Court, and pro-abortion advocates are trying to hang on to what they see as a constitutional right to kill infants in the womb, okay? So that'll be a good show. We need to, uh, we have a lot of work to do to promote life, not just as a law, but within the hearts of people. All right, let's now go over to a studio question. First of all, ma'am, where are you from? Um, I'm from Spring Grove, which is just a suburb of Chicago. So okay. your hometown, Father. Sure. Okay, my question, um, I was studying the book of James. And in it, it says that James was the brother of Jesus. Mm -hmm. We are always taught that Mary is a virgin, ever was, mm -hmm. and ever will be. Mm -hmm. How can you explain that? Simply on the basis of what the Bible says. Right? Right. Okay. okay. Well, okay. let's go to the Bible. And it says there in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, that uh, it, when Jesus was in Nazareth, the people say, are not his brothers James and Joses here with us and his sisters, right? So that it mentions his brothers and sisters there by name. In, and it's also in Matthew, in the parallel uh, when he goes to Nazareth. And also in both of those Gospels, we see his brothers James and Joses mentioned one other time. And that's in relationship to their mother, who is one of the Marys standing at the cross, but not the Blessed Virgin Mary. So the mother of James and Joses is uh, Mary who stood at the cross. And later in the Gospel of John, she is also identified as the wife of of Clopas. So Jesus' brothers are the children of Mary and her husband Clopas. Now who are those people? According to St. Hegesippus, who knew family members, the grandchildren of St. Jude the Apostle, St. Hegesippus wrote in the second century that uh, Clopas was the brother of St. Joseph. So his wife Mary was Our Lady's sister in the sense of sister-in-law. But they don't have that word in Hebrew. They just call them sister. And they don't have the word cousin either. They just call them brothers and sisters. So Jesus' brother, James, and his other brother, Joses are the children of Mary and Clopas, 
the brother-in-law and sister-in-law of Our Lady. Does that help? And that's right there in your Bible. Didn't need to make it up. All right, ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Chicago. Okay, and your question? My question is, how can a person repent when he's not even aware it's a sin? Sure, sure. This is very. This is what we call an um, invincible uh, ignorance that they they don't know. And this happens a lot. You know, there, there are a lot of, uh, matter of fact, there's a famous story of a bishop who went to, uh, a group of bishops had gone to meet with Pope St. John Paul for their, every five years they get together. And one of the bishops said, Holiness, you have to understand that a lot of our young people are not guilty of sin because they don't know that fornication is a sin. And they're not culpable. And the Pope said, these young people, they are not culpable because they do not know. But the bishop who does not teach them this, he is culpable. This is something that applies not only to that bishop, but to all of us. We have to be able to teach people this is what the sins are. Not because I feel it's a sin but because the Ten Commandments teach us about sin. And the meaning of the Ten Commandments, that's why we very much need to read our catechism, the catechism of the Catholic Church, see what the commandments mean and why, and explain to people why your own integrity that gets you ready for marriage is extremely important, and that's why fornication and adultery are very serious sins. And it, this, it undercuts the integrity of your relationship with your spouse or future spouse. And why well, other things. these are what we, we have to teach that. So we priests and bishops and lay people, moms, dads, grandparents, all of us have to teach what is right and wrong. We cannot assume it because, frankly, in many, especially a lot of the public schools, they're teaching people to commit sin. That's part of the fact. And we have to teach them you may not sin. You may not be racist, whether for any group, not for Asian Americans, African Americans, or white Americans, or Native Americans. No racism is acceptable. No murder is acceptable. No sex outside of marriage is acceptable. They don't, it's against the law to teach the Ten Commandments in the public schools. Did you know that? Yeah. Supreme Court made that illegal in 1982. Can't even show. So um, we have to do the opposite of what they do. Sir, where are you from? Yeah, I'm from Skokie, Illinois, Father. Okay, and your question, I just have a minute and a half. Yeah, talking about the fishers of man, Father. Uh, what can you say about the teachings of the different denominations, like the Protestants, Methodists, Episcopalians, mm -hmm. and uh, other denominations? They have different teachings about Christianity. Sure. The, what we have to do with any of this is where we enter into a, an important dialogue and ask, you know, does this conform to the fullness of Scripture? It's not right to take 
one part of Scripture out of context of the whole of Scripture. So we have to compare what is going on with the whole of Scripture. So, for instance, when uh, somebody like Martin Luther says that you um, cannot, uh, you know, that you're justified by faith alone, that this is a problem. Because in the letter of James that you mentioned, chapter 2, verse 26, it says, you are not justified by faith alone. That teaching goes right against what the scripture says. I have to go with what the Bible says, not with what he thought was true. And this is something that uh, we have to do with any of these questions is figure out what is you know, the teaching of scripture and the tradition and evaluate any of their doctrines on our own by that standard. So that's, that's how we do it, okay? But one of the other things we do is end on time because it'll turn off anyway. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for being with us and thank you for your support. We ask that we keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill because Mother Angelica was inspired to have the network brought to you by you, not with commercials and advertising, but your support and your generosity is what keeps these programs going. Thank you all for your help and God bless. Thank you.